Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Today, I'm I'm thrilled to be able to bring this topic up that's that's not talked about enough. It's really about having addiction and also having chronic kidney disease. I have um, have a lot of family members that have suffered from addiction, and I understand how difficult it is. And I'm so thrilled that Henrietta Ivanens is going to share her story about you know, chronic kidney disease and how she decided to tackle addiction and become sober. So welcome to the show, Henrietta. Thank you, Lori. I'm so, so honored to be here. You're you're truly one of my heroes, and I, I don't say that lightly. So thank you. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about when you learned you had chronic kidney disease. Sure, absolutely. Um, I was 13 years old, and um, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I started getting these really high fevers I got uh, that would last about three days, and um, then they would go away. And the first time that that happened, I ended up in the hospital, and they thought I had an acute kidney um, infection, and they gave me some antibiotics and thought that that was that. And then I got these fevers again, and then I got them one more time a few months later, and um, after a biopsy, it was determined that I had uh, glomerulonephritis, which um, is, you know, inflammation of the filters that surround the kidney. And the tricky thing about this particular glomerulonephritis was that um, I never had a virus identified. I never had a triggering virus. I never had mononucleosis. I never had strep throat. And I had three different types of scarring on the filters. They actually, the team in Toronto at the Hospital for Sick Children, took my pathology around the world to conferences. And there was another little boy in Poland who had very similar pathology. Um, so we never figured out why I got it, but it was glomerulonephritis at age 13. And when did your kidneys um, progress where you either needed dialysis or a transplant to survive? So I was put on, you know, a regimen of prednisone, Imuran, and, uh, and baby aspirin. This was in the mid to late 80s. And then I, um, by the end of 1987, I had about 3% kidney function. I went on dialysis very short term. I was really fortunate. My mother was a match. And so that was about a five-year progression uh, or deterioration, really. And, um, and my mom was a match. And so when I was 19 years old, um, she gave me her kidney. And I was extraordinarily lucky. It lasted... Um, well, 22 really good years, and then the last year was a little rough, <laughs> to be truthful. <laughs> it always is when you're losing a yeah. loved kidney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really fortunate. I was on, like I said, short-term dialysis, and um, and that only lasted about six weeks back in 1987. But yeah, the, the last year um, when I did go into chronic kidney transplant rejection was pretty rough. It was pretty rough, yeah, for all of the the listeners out there that go through it, we know. We know what the symptoms are like. Exactly. And when did you discover that you were, you know, having a problem with uh, alcohol and addiction? Yeah, for me, um, well, 
Truthfully, you know, I can look back now. I just celebrated or, you know, just marked rather five years of um, sobriety, um, recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And it's the most important thing in my life today is maintaining that sobriety because everything comes from that. You know, when I was, um, I'm 49 now. When I was 40, my, like I mentioned, my first transplant went into chronic kidney transplant rejection. And I really had no tools to deal with this. Um, I was very angry. I had had, you know, really great health for a long period of time. And, um, and like I said, I had no tools to deal with it. And I can look back now and, and I believe I'm hardwired as an alcoholic. I think, you know, everybody has a different story, but for me, it was very progressive, very slow. Um, I used to take pain medication daily, truthfully, um, very small doses. It was just kind of like a little, you know, a little treat for myself. And then when, uh, and this is often the case in, in addiction, when my transplant went into rejection, when there's some kind of really traumatic event in an addict or alcoholic's life, and I, I refer to myself more as an addict because pills were really more my, my drug of choice, um, quite often addiction kind of skyrockets. It's certainly pro- uh, progressive, but mine was very, very slowly progressive. I mean, we're talking 25 years, I would take a few pills every day, and it really didn't become problematic until I was 40. And then in those last two years, it's extraordinary, but as my kidney was failing, I turned more and more and more to um, alcohol, pills, and um, and just being incredibly angry at the world. It was a really, um, uh, it was a lethal cocktail. And during that period of time, we found out uh, my husband was a match. So I guess the timeline would be you know, I'm not sure how many how much you know details you want, Lori. But well, well, I think it's important because I one of the things that you brought up is that it was progressive. So you you slowly started taking some pain medication, but now uh, when your transplant started to feel fail, you were also dealing with emotional pain. And That's I right. I know oftentimes we confuse physical pain and emotional pain, and treat our emotional pain with physical pain uh, with um actually medication or drugs. And it, it's so difficult because if you don't have the coping skills, and everybody knows that, uh, you know, I'm a total craft art addict, and I yeah. am addicted to making something when I don't feel good, or that's how I've utilized that that coping skill. So I don't yes. turn to medication because I, if I didn't have something to do or to take my mind to another place, I could see how easy it would be to just, I just want to zone out of where I am right now. It's too painful. It is so easy. It is the most challenge. I love, I love, you know, your, your, your mantra, your mantra, your tagline, which, which is, you know, a chronic illness is too overwhelming without hope. And I really, in those two years, um, which was between 40 and 42, from when I was diagnosed with chronic kidney transplant rejection to two years later, I was in rehab. And that's how quickly it progressed for me. I really, I really didn't have hope, even though um, it sounds extraordinary. But And this is the extraordinary thing about addiction. It really hijacks your brain. It completely hijacks your brain because the extraordinary thing was that my husband was a match and he was, his kidney was going to save my life. And once you, as an, as an addict, in my understanding, and it truly is a disease, it's outlined in the American Medical Association as a disease, 
It has symptoms, it's progressive, and it responds to treatment. And it's been outlined this way for quite some time now, and it's also outlined as a psychiatric condition. It really goes in and hijacks your brain, and you, you lose the power of choice. Mm-hmm. So when I was um, getting ready for the transplant, when I was on dialysis, Lori, I, was, I would come home and have a beer. I would uh, take Xanax. It was too much for me to, I couldn't separate it. It was just part of who I was at that time. I really had lost the power of choice, which is really hard for people who are what we call normies, who aren't addicts, Mm -hmm. to understand that it is um, very much a mental condition that we can't overcome without help, at least in my experience. There There are many people that get sober um, in different ways, but I needed help. I needed a lot of help to overcome that and understand that it was a disease that could be treated. Well, and I always like the saying that they um, have an a Alcoholics Anonymous is that I remember because my family members were in that program, but is like their self-will is run riot. Like their own will just goes, takes over and you, you can't really help persuade them to do what's right. They just make bad decisions. Yes, and very much it's so. like those bad decisions layer on top of each other and disaster hits. And when you have chronic kidney disease and you you need dial, I mean, you, you're playing with fire because you don't have that much room for error um, when when you, your kidneys don't work. It's crazy. It's I look back now and you know, one of the first things I did after my husband gave me a kidney was have a beer. It really made complete sense to me in that moment, which is how today I know I've been restored to a kind of sanity. I do, I am a, an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous today, and the truly 12-step programs have saved my life. But in that moment, you really are, um, you are in self-will. You really are, it really is a condition of selfishness and self-centeredness where your, your perception needs to be changed to that of being able to think of others and to being of service. And I could not think of anything but myself and, and what, what would feel, what, it's not even about feeling good. It was just, that was something that made sense to me to do that. Well, and, you know, my poor husband couldn't, you know, couldn't understand why would I do that immediately after a transplant. That's truly to me the power of how this disease hijacks your brain. So during your your second transplant, um, you were actively using or still in the addictive process. Were you able to kind of hide it? How how did that play out when this was all, um, you know, evaluating going through the transplant? And did perhaps you believe the transplant was going to fix you and you therefore would not need to use anymore? Yeah. I mean, this is like... So it's so layered and complicated. Um, it's a fantastic question because there was a lot of hiding. There was a lot of um, stuff that was out there. Um, but yes, I believe very much that my husband thought if we could just hang on and get me to the transplant, um, that this would somehow be resolved. I was definitely, um, I started drinking a lot more and uh, he was very aware of that. And then I actually, this is during the time that I was um, rejecting and uh, and failing. My kidney was failing. My transplant was failing. And I actually overdosed on over, you know, 120 pills. Wow. And the thing Uh, that... You must have been just so depressed. You know, it's funny because I, I now understand that I had just lost 
the power of choice. Like I, to this day, don't really understand why I did that, except that I was an addict and I just kept taking them. I didn't consciously, I ended up going to the hospital um, to Cedar sinai and my husband did um, bring me there with a friend and the ER psychiatrist wanted to 5150 me because she was so, she thought it was a suicide attempt and I kept trying to explain to her that it wasn't. And I can honestly tell you, it really wasn't. I truly had just kept taking the pills Mm -hmm. because I just couldn't stop. And that's the strangest explanation. But when you are an addict, you understand that you just (laughs) simply can't stop. What is the saying? Um, One is too many and a million's not enough. That's right. That's exactly right, Lori. That's exactly right. And that I knew in my heart of hearts, I hadn't tried to kill myself. And Kevin, my husband, was actually able to talk them out of a 5150. But I was supposed to have my transplant evaluation um, a few days after that overdose. And I ended up speaking with them. And they said, you are now on a six-month, what would the word be, a hold, essentially. You're on hold. And we're going to reevaluate you in six months to see if you're mentally stable enough to have a transplant. So I caused all of that through that horrific behavior that addict behavior, but I, um, I had no gratitude. I had no remorse for that. Um, I honestly was just still so caught up in, and then I just, I got discharged from the hospital and I remember they sent me home. And this is a great misconception that, um, the medical establishment has about addiction that I had overdosed on this one migraine medication, but they sent me home with Ambien and Xanax. And those are extremely addictive medications. And mm-hmm. so they clearly didn't understand that this was an addict overdosing. They thought this was a very sad kidney transplant patient who had tried to kill herself. And there's a huge gap to this day that I'm, right. I'm trying to bring awareness to in writing and being active in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, that the medical establishment, for the most part, Western medicine really doesn't get what addiction is. Right. Um, because to do something like that when someone's been red flagged as an addict who overdosed and then to send them home with extremely addictive medication is ludicrous. It's absurd. And um, so I don't know if that really answered your question, well, but I that's, think it's that's certainly part of the journey. I mean, because, you know, the medical establishment wants to treat our symptoms and wants to make us better. And, you know, they want to make you feel better. And I think there's more awareness now coming out in the community about how addictive so many medications are. I mean, we have a Oxycontin like uh, epidemic. And unfortunately, there are more deceased donors now because of overdoses from, you know, uh, prescription drugs. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's awful. These things are uh, deadly to you. And if, you're absolutely if right. That is that's it, the root problem. It's it's yeah. I mean, so uh, so let's uh, so you you got your transplant from your husband. He donated the gift of life, and and was that a pretty pretty easy process? Um, as far as just the transplant goes, as far as the transplant goes, it was. I mean, it was for me. Um, Kevin had some complications, which I, I won't embarrass him with, but it really had nothing to do with. Um, the the nephrectomy um you know so it it was a little uncomfortable for him but he was you know he was up and working again my husband is a portrait photographer and he was working again within two weeks um so for the most part 
um, I, you know, I did well in terms of the donation, but then because I was drinking and using so much, that was the incredible thing is I picked up right back where I left off. And so for those last six months before I went into rehab, right after the transplant in 2011, I was drinking and using more than ever, more than ever. I mean, it had completely um, just seized hold of me. So I did reject, I think, a couple months after my transplant was in April of 2011. And in June, I did have a rejection episode. And um, nobody had any idea how much I was drinking and using. And to this day, I've since talked with my team at Cedar sinai And they're certainly on board now, more with the idea that that was part of the reason why I rejected. As you know, it can be very common in the first year for patients to initially reject their kidney um, and then they just adjust the immunosuppressives. But that for sure played a part in why I, re- I rejected. I was drinking so much. It was, it was obscene and extraordinary. So what finally was the turning point to say, I need help and I got to get sober? I, um, it has been a bit of a process for me. It was, it was more of like an intervention type situation, which doesn't always work because the addict really has to be willing. They have to be 100% willing. And in October, I had, um, I had overdosed again on over like 100 uh, Xanax and Clonopin. They're called benzodiazepines. They're often prescribed for, you know, tremors and um, insomnia and anxiety and things like that, which is something that a, a transplant patient deals with. You know, this is not an easy life to, ha- to have chronic illness. And I had done the same thing. I just couldn't stop taking them. And I ended up back at Cedars again. And then I was through a remarkable series of events. My father-in-law, my husband, um, a friend of a friend, and a couple of my best friends, they all kind of swooped in and got me into a rehab facility in West Hollywood. And it was really there that where all the seeds were planted, um, where I was introduced to really wonderful um, professionals, doctors and therapists and psychiatrists and the like. But really, that's where I found the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that changed everything for me. I wasn't quite ready at that point, and it was another really almost year and a half before I got it. But um, but when I started to hear what people were saying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I understood that I had found my people, that we we thought the same way, and that there was there was a treatment for the way that we thought, coming from that place of selfish, self-centeredness, um, a way to change my perception about things, a way to um, to admit that I was powerless. I truly am powerless over it. And as soon as you do that, it's the most empowering thing. It really isn't, it doesn't feel like a weakness or a failure. When you really let go, it's the most empowering thing. Because suddenly you're not alone. It did take a bit of a bit of time for me. But as I, as I mentioned today, I have five years clean and sober and it's... um. It's honestly what a road to get here, but it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. The best well, thing by well, I far. Think I, I, I'm going to have Ian put a little round of applause right here for you because I think that's important. <laughs> I, well, he'll add one for you, okay? <laughs> because that's it's really amazing. And and how do you feel today, clean and sober, compared to when you were using? Like, do you feel more hopeful, more full of life? Yes, absolutely. I mean, as you know, it's like we said at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I had no tools. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is really given me this set of tools. 
And a lot of it is about, like I said, letting go, um, admitting I'm powerless. It's always about looking at my part in things and what, what actions do I need to clean up? Uh, have I misbehaved in some way? Have I acted badly in some way? What are my motives? Um, we, we go out and, you know, there's a whole 12 step program, as I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of. And we go out there and we repair the damage that we've done in our relationships. And then what I get to do now is I get to carry this message to other women. And I'm, I'm actively sponsoring four women today. It's the joy of my life to, to be able to be of service and to, um, to help other people mm-hmm. that in the way that I was helped. And I do today to this, uh, to this day, I, um, I have very powerful tools in prayer. I'm not sure, Lori, what it is that I pray to, but it's some kind of a friend. It's some kind of a source of strength and empowerment. I meditate, which is a tool that's been around for thousands of years. It's mm-hmm. nothing new, right? And I'll, I'll tell you a really quick anecdote. For my first kidney transplant, I was on blood pressure medication the whole time, which is very common. But with this transplant, I have never been on blood pressure medication, and I've been praying and meditating pretty much the whole time. So I have to say that there's something to that. I mean, I'm sure scientifically there's something to support that, but prayer and meditation are tools that um, everybody can use. You don't obviously have to be an alcoholic. And those have really changed. Um, They center me. Like I said, they give me strength. They give me empowerment. And I feel like I can deal with almost anything. Um, you know, today, Lori, I actually have a very strange undiagnosed nerve condition that started in my skin. And I'm often in chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, we've talked a little bit about this. You know, dealing with pain is, it's, there are other options. There are other solutions other than pain meds. Instead of pop- popping a hydrocodone, right? You don't. You don't pop yeah. a hydrocodone when you're in pain. You figure out other ways to That's right. make yourself feel better. Um, what are some of the strategies you use uh, other than the ones that you've mentioned through meditation? Um, do, have you found any other strategies to deal with pain and not yeah, to ask I mean, for a prescription? <laughs> I, I, um, I have not you know, needed to use anything, although certainly there's been times where it felt a little unfair. It would have been nice to be able to have a glass of wine at night. But no, um, for me, exercise is a huge one too. It's, um, there's two hours of pure relief for me after those endorphins kick in. And there's so many different ways, you know, to exercise and get your heart rate up and get those endorphins going. And whether it's swimming, you know, for me, I like cardio, um, whatever it is for people, but that's another one that's huge for me. And a huge part of my life has been finding and embracing, like you were saying about your craft, Lori, for me, writing has changed my life. It's something that I discovered later in life. I used to work as an actress. And um, today I've, I've actually completed now, it took me three years, but I completed a memoir on exactly the events that you and I were just talking about. Um, writing is something I lose myself in. I forget to eat. I forget to go to sleep. You know, it's that thing you were saying, you're addicted right. to craft. You just, you lose yourself in it. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly powerful. Everybody should... Um, to the best of their ability, find something like that in their lives that really enriches them, where they lose themselves, they lose all sense of time, and um, and it just fulfills you in a way that something short term like a drug or you know it just it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in the long term. 
And the name of your book is In Pillness and in Health. And That's we'll, right. we'll certainly let our listeners know when it's available. But it just sounds like um, a f- fantastic journey. Uh, to wrap up, what is your creatinine right now? Oh, I'm so excited. So it, it's 1.0 and the, the result beforehand was 1.1. So you know how much those little points, points. matter. Oh, my I'm goodness. I'm thrilled. It's so exciting. And yeah. Henrietta, you know, your story is remarkable. Thank you for being open and honest and sharing because I know that this interview is going to touch so many people's lives. And and if you need help, ask for it, right? That's, that's what um, you need to do. We're really lucky. We're in a time today, I'll just end with this, that um, sobriety and, and reaching for recovery is nothing to be ashamed of. And especially here um, in Southern California, where you and I are, it is very much an open issue. And there's no reason to feel shame. There's so many people that, so many people that are willing to help and will help you if you just ask. Thank you. Thank you so much, and, Lori. And let's give her Enjoy. another round of applause, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Thank you, Lori. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.